Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Uh, let's deliver. End fossil fuels. Save our planet and our future. That was the message of a 12-year-old indigenous climate activist from India who disrupted the proceedings at the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai, where outrage is growing after a call to phase out fossil fuels is dropped from a draft of the proposed climate deal. We'll go to Dubai for the latest. Then to Texas, where the state Supreme Court's ruled against a woman who had to flee to another state to have an emergency abortion. This comes as Kentucky's abortion ban is also being challenged. In America, every eight hours, a woman dies from pregnancy complications. And evidence is correlating abortion bans as a key factor driving increasing maternal and infant death rates. But first to Israel, as relatives of hostages held in Gaza urge Israeli lawmakers to use diplomacy, not war, to free their loved ones. We'll speak with an Israeli peace activist whose 84-year-old mother was released by Hamas in late November. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli troops, backed by tanks and heavy artillery, have stormed the besieged Kamal Adwan Hospital in northern Gaza Strip, where 3,000 displaced people are sheltering from Israel's unrelenting assault. Al Jazeera reports medical staff inside the hospital are among those shot and killed, as were two mothers killed Monday when Israel's military bombarded the hospital's maternity ward. The hospital's remaining patients include a dozen children in an intensive care unit and six newborns in incubators. Palestinian health officials say Israeli soldiers were rounding up men in the hospital courtyard, stripping them, blindfolding them, and taking them away for interrogation. A Human Rights Watch official said such treatment, quote, amounts to a war crime, unquote. The assault on the Kamal Adwan hospital comes as Israel's military continued to bombard the southern Gaza Strip, including Rafah, on the Egyptian side, where thousands of Palestinians expelled from northern Gaza face dire shortages of food, water, medicine, fuel and shelter. This is Fatima Soleiman al-Maliha, who was displaced along with her family from northern Gaza. 
There is no food or drink. The house is destroyed. There is nothing. There is no money. Please stop the war on us, for God's sake. We are innocent people. We have nothing. We own nothing. We are unarmed people, for God's sake. Look at us, Muslims, foreigners, the U.S. itself. Stop the war, for God's sake. We are destroyed. Where would we go? You moved us from the north to Rafa. We don't know where to go. We don't sleep. By God, we don't sleep. We are depressed. We are scared, dead scared about our sons and children. We have children with disabilities, paralyzed ones. Where would we go? Palestinians and their supporters around the world joined a global strike Monday demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The action, which saw businesses closed and other activities suspended for the day, came in response to the United States' veto of a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for an urgent ceasefire in Gaza. In Washington, D.C., over a dozen Jewish elders chained themselves to the fence in front of the White House, urging President Biden to end his opposition to a ceasefire. The 18 women who participated in the act of civil disobedience read the names of Palestinians killed by Israeli forces since Hamas's October 7th attack. They also chanted, Biden, Biden, pick a side, ceasefire, not genocide. Also in Capitol Hill, over 100 protesters occupied the Senate atrium Monday, urging lawmakers and the Biden administration to cease all military aid to Israel and instead divest funds for affordable housing, health care and other needs. Many protesters wore black shirts with the words invest in life. Dozens were arrested. The Harvard Corporation, Harvard University's highest governing body, has rejected calls to fire President Claudine Gay following a contentious congressional hearing on anti-Semitism and a broader effort to restrict pro-Palestinian speech on college campuses. That's according to the Harvard Crimson, which reports the decision came after more than 700 faculty members signed an open letter calling on the Harvard Corporation to, quote, defend the independence of the university and to resist political pressures that are at odds with Harvard's commitment to academic freedom, including calls for the removal of President Claudine Gay, unquote. The letter continues, quote, the critical work of defending a culture of free inquiry in our diverse community cannot proceed if we let its shape be dictated by outside forces, unquote. Claudine Gay also won the backing of Harvard's Alumni Association and more than 70 black faculty members who called attacks on her specious and politically motivated. Gay was inaugurated in October as the first African-American and second woman to lead Harvard University. She's the daughter of Haitian immigrants. Efforts to unseat her came as University of Pennsylvania President Elizabeth McGill resigned her position following intense Republican-led backlash and a Capitol Hill grilling by far-right Republican Congressmember Elise Stefanik. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is in Washington, D.C. today, hoping to break a Republican-led deadlock over U.S. military aid. On Monday, Zelensky said any further delay of U.S. support for Ukraine's military will play into the hands of Russian president Vladimir Putin. Zelensky's visit comes as Ukrainian military leaders admit their months-long counteroffensive aimed at reclaiming territory occupied by Russia has largely failed. The White House has asked Congress to approve more than 61 
billion in additional aid to Ukraine, part of a larger $110 billion package that also includes arms for Taiwan and Israel and money to further militarize the U.S.-Mexico border. But Senate Republicans have rejected the aid package, calling for even greater restrictions on immigration. This comes as The Guardian reports allies of Hungary's far-right prime minister, Viktor Orban, are holding a closed-door meeting with Republicans in Washington to push for an end to U.S. military support for Ukraine in a two-day event hosted by the Heritage Foundation think tank. In Russia, supporters of Alexei Navalny say the jailed opposition leader is missing. The Kremlin critic has been locked in a penal colony since last year, sentenced to more than three decades on what he says are trumped-up charges of fraud and extremism. Those charges came after Navalny narrowly survived an assassination attempt in 2020 when he was poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok. On Monday, Navalny's spokesperson said she feared for his life. The main thing for us is to find him as soon as possible, because uh, right now he's completely alone and he is uh, literally in the hands of people who once tried to kill him. Uh, so we don't know what they will do again. A secret memorandum issued by India's government last April ordered diplomatic staff in North America to launch a sophisticated crackdown scheme against Sikh diaspora organizations in Western countries. That's according to The Intercept, which reveals the memo lists several Sikh dissidents under investigation by India's intelligence agencies, including the Canadian citizen Hardeep Singh Nijar, who was murdered in Vancouver in June in what Canada's government said was an assassination arranged by India's government. The memo said, quote, concrete measures shall be adopted to hold the suspects accountable, unquote. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has long been accused of targeting Sikh leaders at home and abroad. In Dubai, frustration is mounting as a draft agreement for the U.N.'s COP28 climate summit so far omits the phasing out of fossil fuels, drawing widespread criticism from climate activists who've denounced the draft text as a death warrant for the planet. The document released Monday instead calls for reducing both consumption and production of fossil fuels. Environmentalist, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore, said on social media, quote, COP28 is now on the verge of complete failure, unquote. Meanwhile, a peaceful action broke out Monday as several activists gathered outside a meeting room in Dubai's Expo City, where COP28 President Sultan al-Jaber was expected to hold a news conference. Protesters held hands and formed a line demanding a fossil fuel phase-out. This is Emma Beretta, climate activist from the United States. If we don't get a phase-out in the text at this COP, then there's a very high chance that we are going to exceed 1.5 degrees of warming, which will ensure a completely unlivable future for youth like me, for marginalized people, for indigenous people, for people of color, and for everyone. We'll go to Dubai later in the broadcast. In California, a group of children has filed a federal lawsuit charging the Environmental Protection Agency and its administrator with failing to regulate life-threatening greenhouse gases, despite knowing the harm it causes the children's health and welfare. It's the latest in a series of youth-led climate lawsuits brought by the nonprofit law firm Our Children's Trust. 14-year-old plaintiff 
Avro S. said in a statement, quote, we're experiencing what no one should have to experience. We're facing constitutional negligence. We're challenging the EPA's failure to protect us. The air we breathe has become a casualty of their opposition, unquote. In August, a court in Montana ruled in favor of a similar lawsuit brought by young people who'd sued Montana's government for violating their constitutional rights as it pushed policies that encourage the use of fossil fuels. The prosecutor behind Donald Trump's federal election interference case has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to clarify whether the former president has immunity from prosecution. Special counsel Jack Smith made the request for an expedited answer from the Supreme Court Monday in a bid to stave off any delays ahead of Trump's trial scheduled for March 4th. Trump's accused of leading efforts to overturn the 2020 election and inciting the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol January 6, 2021. Trump has claimed the Constitution accords him absolute immunity from prosecution. Over the weekend, Donald Trump doubled down on his claims that he would not be a dictator if he becomes president again, quote, other than day one, he said. Trump was speaking at the New York Young Republican Club's annual gala on Wall Street. You know why I wanted to be a dictator? Because I want a wall, right? I want a wall and I want to drill, drill, drill. In Washington, D.C., a federal jury will decide how much ex-President Trump's disgrace former attorney Rudy Giuliani will pay after a judge found him liable for defaming two Georgia election workers whom Giuliani falsely accused of ballot tampering after the 2020 election. As the trial got underway Monday, Giuliani's lawyers argued the millions of dollars in damages sought by the workers, Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shea Moss, would amount to the, quote, civil equivalent of the death penalty and would quote, end Mr. Giuliani, unquote. And in Texas, Kate Cox, a woman seeking to terminate her 20-week pregnancy, has fled the state to obtain emergency abortion care after the Texas Supreme Court blocked a ruling that would have allowed her to get the procedure. Cox sought an abortion in Texas after learning the fetus has a lethal abnormality that, if carried to term, could make it impossible for her to have more children. This is Molly Duane, an attorney with the Center for Reproductive Rights. We are talking about a very real woman and a family who's not only grieving the loss of a child, but is dealing with serious health conditions that that exacerbated by the pregnancy that she is, you know, challenged with every single day. And um, for the attorney general to basically say, no, I know better than your doctors and I get to veto the health care that everyone else says you need is really a stunning thing to see. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. We'll go to Kentucky and to Texas. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations General Assembly is voting today on a resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza and the immediate release of all hostages. The vote comes four days after the United States vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire to halt Israel's bombardment of Gaza, which has killed over 18,000 Palestinians. Israel says Hamas and other groups in Gaza are still holding 138 hostages. During the seven-day truce in late November— Hamas released 105 hostages in exchange for 240 Palestinian women and children who were held in Israeli prisons. On Monday, relatives of some of the remaining Israeli hostages met with Israeli lawmakers at the Knesset.
The Times of Israel reports the families, quote, called for the government to prioritize seeking an agreement for their release through diplomatic channels rather than pressing on with the military offensive in Gaza against Hamas, unquote. Family members are planning to hold a protest outside the Knesset today under the slogan, the hostages have no time. We're joined right now by Netta Heyman Mina. Her 84-year-old mother, Ditsa Heyman, was held hostage in Gaza and freed on November 28th. She'd been kidnapped on October 7th from her home on the kibbutz near Oz, near the border with Gaza by Hamas. Netta Heyman is joining us from Haifa. She's a member of the Israeli chapter of Women Wage Peace. Netta, welcome to Democracy Now! I'm so sorry under these circumstances. Can you talk about what you're demanding? We are demanding to release all the hostages. We are demanding from the Israeli government to put a deal on the table. Not, do not wait to the to Sinwar to um, uh, offer a deal. We need the Israeli government uh, to put uh, a, a deal uh, that will be. It will be a painful um, price. Uh, we will need to release a lot of uh, prison, uh, Palestinian prisoners. Uh, we will need to uh, do a lot of uh, days uh, of uh, stop the fire, fire stop. Uh, but the people are uh, that uh, was taken in the seventh of October. Uh, the price is uh, for them, uh, and uh, they deserve this price because uh, the the. The country was uh, uh, left them behind. There, it, uh, it's been 67 days, I think, see, uh, since the 7th in October, and they're still there. Yesterday, Amiram Cooper from Kibbutz Niroz, uh, was, uh, it was his uh, 85th birthday, an uh, 85-year-old man that they uh, uh, keeping hostage in Gaza. In a, without a, a medication, without a, enough food, a, who can survive this? There's been some discussion of Israel flooding the tunnels with salt water. Um, can you respond to this and what was yes. said to Israeli yes, lawmakers? Part of, our, our, part of our people are in these tunnels. Uh, if you flood it with water, what will happen to the hostages? We know part of them is in the tunnels, are in the tunnels. Can you talk about the day that your mother was released? This was during the truce, during the temporary ceasefire, when more than 100 Hamas released more than 100 hostages. Um, where were you? How was your mother, uh, Ditsa Heyman? Uh, it was very exciting. Uh, we wait for this uh, for uh, 53 days. She was uh, hosted uh, 53 days. Uh, and we wait for her to be in the list. Every day, every day there was a list uh, who will be released uh, the day after. And we wait. And she came back. Uh, we were very happy. She came back and she's okay. 
but there is a lot of people are still still there and this this is what important to bring them uh, back home immediately because they they have no time they're uh, the bombing uh, on Gaza can hurt them my mother wasn't in the tunnel every bomb that uh, uh, fell on uh, Gaza uh, can hurt her uh, hurt the hostages and we must bring them home now there is no time and can you talk more about how she was treated by Hamas, uh, who she was held with, and also who your mom, 84 years old, Ditsa is, and talk about her role in the kibbutz near Oz? I can't—the uh, story of her uh, 53 days, it's her story, and I can't uh, tell uh, her condition and— uh, because it can be a danger for the people who left behind. Um, she was uh, 84 year old, years old, that they live her, all, all her adult life in the kibbutz, uh, near the border in, uh, with Gaza. Uh, she built the kibbutz. She was uh, from the founders of the kibbutz. Uh, she was a very... Um, she was a social worker for... A, long uh, time. She worked until uh, age of 80. And Netta, if you can talk about your organization, um, Women Wage Peace, an organization that um, the slain uh, activist Vivian Silver was also a part of, who was killed on one of the kibbutzes. They thought she was being held hostage, uh, but ultimately, uh, I guess they found DNA of her on the kibbutz. Women Red Peace is a movement, Israeli movement, uh, of uh, people from all of the uh, rainbow, political rainbow. We are not a... Um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, and we all we ask for since uh, Tsuketan since uh, 2014 to uh, make an agreement with the Palestinians. We don't. We doesn't uh, uh, tell what kind of agreement, but we are believe that there is a possibility to talk with the Palestinians and uh, to make an agreement that uh, will bring us a, a peaceful life. Um, we have a, a sisterhood a movement, a Palestinian sisterhood movement, that uh, we call, uh, they call us the, themselves uh, women of the sun. Uh, there are people, uh, women from uh, the West Bank and from Gaza as well. And uh, we all believe that uh, we can live here uh, in peace. In your opinion piece for Haaretz back in October, you wrote, I'm furious at the Israeli government and the accursed members of the government who, because of them, the army was patrolling in the West Bank village of Hawara over the Sukkot holiday instead of guarding and protecting my mother. I'm furious at this government that has for almost a year been doing everything they can to escalate the situation in the Gaza border area. This colossal failure, this chaos is on their shoulders, is their fault, as is the fact that even now, four days later, a government representative has still not visited most of the families of the hostages. That was in October. 
Um, if you can talk about what is happening now with the Israeli government, how they're communicating with you. You gave a speech yesterday. Explain where you gave it and what your message was, Nita. Uh, the Israeli government uh, contact uh, uh, all the all the families and the, uh, uh, all the hostage families has uh, contact with the government and, and with the army, uh, but it took uh, too long. Uh, part of the uh, families, it took uh, almost uh, two weeks until uh, someone uh, called them. Uh, yesterday, we were uh, women red peace uh, were uh, lighting uh, Hanukkah uh, candles in the hostages square in the Muse um, Tel Aviv Museum, um, and we call for a uh, release all the hostages and start a peace process after. Would, what would that peace process look like? I don't know. I know that the Hamas must go on. They can't uh, control Gaza, but Israel can't control Gaza as well. Uh, it will be, I think it's, it will be, uh, it will need a... Um, uh, international uh, involvement uh, to establish um, establish someone some something else in Gaza that uh, maybe the Palestinian uh, uh, I don't know how to say authority uh, the Palestinian authority, authority. Uh, will take yes the the Palestinian authority will take uh, Gaza. Uh, to establish someone, something else uh, to replace the Hamas control in Gaza. Your final and thoughts. Maybe, your final what? thoughts on President Biden and the United States vetoing the UN Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire. Uh, I think uh, it must be ce uh, ceasefire for uh, uh, that we can release all the hostages. And then Israel has the right to uh, to protect herself. And uh, what happened in the 7th of October uh, came out from Gaza. But I don't think uh, to uh, dis we can destroy Gaza or erase Gaza. There are uh, also uh, innocent people in Gaza. Not all the all of them uh, from the Hamas. Well, Netta Heyman Mina, I want to thank you for being with us. Um, her 84-year-old mother, Ditza Heyman, was kidnapped by Hamas from her home on the kibbutz near Oz, near the Gaza border, uh, was released November 28th. Netta is a member of the Israeli chapter of Women Wage Peace. Coming up, outrage is growing in Dubai after a call to phase out fossil fuels is dropped from the draft of the proposed climate deal at the U.N. Climate Summit. We'll be in Dubai. Stay with us. I think I loved you.
Love Letter from the Sea to the Shore by Delaney Bailey. This is the Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We go now to Dubai, where the UN Climate Summit, COP28, has entered its final hours. On Monday, negotiators released a draft agreement that omits a call to phase out fossil fuels, though it mentions fossil fuels for the first time. Climate activists and leaders from many small island nations have denounced the draft text as a death warrant for the planet. The document, released Monday, instead calls for reducing both consumption and production of fossil fuels. Former U.S. Vice President Al Gore said on social media, COP28 is now on the verge of complete failure. On Monday, a 12-year-old climate activist from India disrupted the high-level proceedings by storming the stage. And let's deliver. The 12-year-old activist, Lissapriya Kangujam, was holding up a sign that read, End Fossil Fuels, Save Our Planet and Our Future. She spoke after the action. was in COP25 in Madrid, Spain, when I was around seven years old, and it has been five years from them. And there has been no concrete action from our world leaders, and our world leaders keep on firing our planet, keep on destroying our planet and our future. You see, asking clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, and clean planet to live is all our basic rights. And asking those basic rights is completely unnecessary, you know? We must be having those basic rights right now. And we are not having that at all. So how is that fair? And raising my voice in the plenary session and taking my badge just like that, how is that fair? We're joined now by two guests at COP28 in Dubai. Tasneem Esap is executive director of Climate Action Network International, an expert on climate, energy, poverty and social justice issues, the founding director of the Energy Democracy Initiative in South Africa. And we're joined by Mina Rahman, head of programs at Third World Network, also the president of Friends of the Earth Malaysia. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, let's begin uh, with Mina Rahman. Uh, talk about this draft text and the outrage that it has been met by um, at the climate summit and around the world. Yeah, uh, well, this is not the final text as yet, what we saw. Um, it was, it contained many options there, including a fossil a phase down of coal. Uh, it had references to fossil fuel phase out, and it had the production and consumption uh, of fossil fuels reduced and, uh, and some other options. So it's not final as yet. It went to the heads of delegations and states last night, ministers last night. Many of us were following what was happening. Uh, the room was actually quite divided. And what was actually quite outrageous for us, if I may, if I may um, the U.S., Canada, Australia, Japan, um, uh, Germany, uh, the European Union as a whole, one by one stood up to say that the fossil fuel phase-out language uh, is not there or it was insufficient and needs to be strengthened and that you need to keep 
um, the North Star. They kept repeating the North Star about keeping the 1.5 degree Celsius limit alive, and they kept referring to the North Star. Now, what was sickening to me was these uh, we these are the so-called biggest polluters and emitters, historical emitters, who refuse to acknowledge historical responsibility, and they do not want to talk about the equitable distribution of the carbon budget from his historical times where developed countries and the rich countries have overconsumed four-fifths of that budget with very little space left for developing countries. So that was the call by the rich north pretending to be climate champions because we know and we have read the reports of many research organizations including Oil Change International which have clearly showed that these very same countries as they come here and pretend to be climate champions and talk about a limiting temperature rise and also talk about ending fossil fuels have signed and continue to sign licenses for expansion and production of fossil fuels. So for us it was absolutely duplicitous on their part to do that. And there was no reference to the means of implementation, which is the provision of finance, technology and capacity building for developing countries to do the face out. So it was not about justice. It was not about climate justice. It was not about equity because all they do here and they come here and pretend as if it's all the fault of developing countries. So those of us who are here have been exposing this hypocrisy and we are saying that if you, the fossil fuel phase out has to be fair, has to be just, has to be equitable and developed countries must take the lead and they must end fossil fuel production and consumption now, not in 2030, 2040 or 2050. And they have to do their fair shares of reductions and they must take into account historical responsibility and must provide the finance, the technology transfer for the developing countries to move into the transition because we can't do it overnight. They talk about peaking of ambitions by 2025. That's a global peak. You can't have the rich world taking 100 over years to peak and preach to the developing world, much of whom do not have clean energy, do not have access to um, electricity, where there's constant breakdowns, even in New Delhi, people live in blackouts. And uh, of course, Tasneem will talk more about what happens in South Africa. So there is a need for a just transition and it has to be any outcome from here must be just so you, and equitable. You can't just look at whether fossil fuel language is there, but the issue is really whether it can get done so that the poor don't have to be burdened even further. It cannot be uh, applauded just because you have language on fossil fuels in the text. So Tasneem Essop, your executive director of Climate Action Network. Um, is this really any surprise when you have the head of the U.N. Climate Summit, the head of the UAE's uh, national oil company? He's an oil executive who said before the copy even began that there's no science call behind a, um, a fossil fuel phase out. This seems to follow exactly what he has said. As people know, a few days ago, I, um, in Dubai, I followed him asking him these two questions about being the head of the oil company um, and saying that there's no role for a fossil fuel phase out. And also the fact that at this U.N. climate summit, there um, are more 
fossil fuel lobbyists, close to 2,500, than, of course, at any COP before, um, something like four or three times more than there were in the last few years. Can you talk about the effects of that? Also, President Biden not showing up at this U.N. climate summit. Um, uh, Kamala Harris, the vice president, did. But uh, what you're calling for and also if you can talk about the protests that have and have not been allowed as you demand everything from fossil fuel phase out to a ceasefire in Gaza. Yeah, thanks, Amy. So <clears throat> I do want to be clear about the COP president's role in relation to the text and uh, where negotiations are right now. Look, you know, he's made statements across the years since his appointment. I can say that we've been engaging the COP president, even though, you know, we've agreed to disagree on the issue of our priority to get an outcome for a just and equitable phase-out of fossil fuels, he has been engaging NGOs. And so he's been pretty forthcoming in terms of the ideas that we're presenting to him, especially in relation to ensuring that equitable approach to a phase-out of fossil fuels. That's an important element that Mina also speaks about. We can't just have phase-out language as if there's no context to a phase-out of fossil fuels. And so you would have seen that his rhetoric over the year did change. It shifted, you know, when the language of it is inevitable that we should have a phase out of fossil fuels. We heard that in Bonn already. He's been really, really wanting to get an outcome, recognizing that we have to have an outcome on fossil fuels at this COP. So, yes, of course, the context with, uh, you know, fossil fuel industries being here, this is not a new phenomenon, Amy. We saw the starting, uh, I mean, they've been in the process for many years and uh, the kind of visible presence already in Glasgow. These are all elements that we're not surprised about, but we need to be focused about the outcome and he's not been uh, at all um, in any active way appeared to be obstructive about that outcome in his engagement with us as NGOs. He was really keen to have an outcome on fossil phasing out fossil fuels as a legacy from COP28. So I, I just want to, to be uh, clear about that and the engagements we've had with him. Uh, in relation to the protests, yes, certainly we came into this COP with a set of demands. One of them, of course, uh, a just and equitable phase out of fossil fuels. Uh, the idea of a package an energy package is what we came into this COP with. We, and the package would include uh, equitable phase-out, it would include an equitable phasing of renewable energy, and importantly, and this is what's missing right now, financial support. The kind of transitions that developing countries will have to take, whether they are least developing countries, small island states, or middle-income countries, that transition is going to cost money. And we know that our 
developing countries, particularly many of them reeling under debt burden, will need financial support. So when Mina talks about the challenges surrounding uh, of end, you know, end of fossil fuels or a phase out, without understanding the context that we have to have an equitable phase out, and when developed countries do not understand that and will not commit to the levels of support required to achieve that equity, to lead, in fact, to lead the text, the draft text on the table, didn't make any reference to developed countries going first and fastest. And we know that reports, the IEA, IPCC said that there cannot be any new production yet. It is the developing, the developed countries that are still, as Mina says, signing licenses, expanding production, investing in fossil fuels. And so we have to address this. This is the real political context. We do want an outcome uh, for, on a phase out of fossil fuels, but we do want it to be equitable and just. And this is where the developed countries will have to step up and, and do that and, and ensure that kind of outcome. Um, the other issue that we've been protesting about, of course, is standing in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Palestine and highlighting the unfolding genocide in Gaza. <coughs> Excuse me. So we have been very active in the space as well. It's been challenging, but we have been actively protesting on the genocide in Gaza. I wanted to ask about a U.N. report finding global South countries need nearly $400 billion per year to prepare for climate change, but only $21 billion was given in 2021. The report saying, in addition to between $200 and $366 billion needed for every passing year, talk about the demands of the wealthy—you're making of wealthier nations and some of the worst polluters. For example, historically, the biggest one, the United States, now the largest polluter, China— um, if you can address these issues and what impact does climate change have on your country in South Africa? Well, we both are contributed to, uh, you know, climate change, but we're also extremely vulnerable to climate change. And we've had a number of um, extreme weather events recently flooding well, both in my city, Cape Town, in the Western Cape and in KwaZulu-Natal. So, and there have been droughts uh, in the country. So, of course, we are challenged and vulnerable. Uh, on the issue of finance, though, um, we're not talking about billions any longer, Amy. We're really needing to talk about the trillions. And this is where uh, the conversation has to pivot towards. We're still hearing people talk about, you know, fulfilling a hundred billion um, uh, obligation that they've not fulfilled yet, but we already understand that the, uh, the, accumulate, the accumulated needs now, whether we're addressing the, the actions we need to take to uh, reduce emissions, whether it's the actions that we need to take to build resilience and for adaptation, and whether it's the funding needed to address loss and damage. When we look at that, we're really talking about trillions and not billions. And we have to look at all the measures to, um, you know, get that resources. 
mostly for adaptation, loss and damage, it has to be public funding. It has to be. The developed countries right now are trying to, uh, you know, shift us away from taking a public funding approach to it and wanting to look at private sector funding, which is impossible for, you know, private sector will not fund loss and damage. They won't fund adaptation because it's not profit making. Certainly, maybe, you know, for mitigation, yes, of course, but not for adaptation, not for loss and damage. And so certainly we're needing to talk about public funding. We need to talk about uh, developed countries looking at securing that funding and mobilizing it. And then we have to also look at what we're calling the polluters pay uh, principle, where we know the fossil fuel industry, those companies have to pay for uh, their pollution and they've been making huge profits so certainly a windfall tax on fossil fuel companies is one of those options that we can look at yes uh, so for funding and I'm sure Mina will be able to, to add to this we developed countries have to step up uh, they can mm. find funding so easily Mean, so easily. Mina, for we, wars. we just and have a minute, Mina Raman. I wanted to end with you on what uh, is going yeah. to happen today. Is this climate summit actually going to end? Are you going to succeed in getting concessions? And are you concerned that um, the loss and damage fund um, uh, will be initially run by the World Bank? Well, I think the loss and damage fund issue has already been settled. Um, unfortunately, developing countries had to have a, give a huge concession in allowing the World Bank to be the interim uh, financial intermediary for four years, subject to conditions. So that battle has already been locked in. So we will be watching whether the World Bank lives up to its obligations. In relation to the outcome of the talks, we don't know as yet. We are waiting for the text which will land on us in any time in the next few hours, and we expect the talks to go on late into the night, as always the case, and we really have to see whether this is a text which will actually help protect the planet and the poor, or will it continue to allow the biggest polluters and the big rich nations to continue to escape their responsibility, but pretend to be climate champions and continue fossil fuel expansion production and consumption. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. We'll continue this discussion tomorrow. Mina Rahman is head of programs at Third World Network, president of Friends of the Earth Malaysia, and Tasneem Esop, executive director of Climate Action Network International um, from South Africa. Next up, the Texas Supreme Court has ruled against a woman who had to flee to another state to have an emergency abortion. And we'll look at how Kentucky's ban on abortion is being challenged. Stay with us. Oh, my mind. Show the wind. How you pass Kindly, I 
fix the past a task you cannot hope to do And I commiserate with you who made the parallel mistakes that I don't do her grain Praise, climb above the mountainside Protest songs are in our eyes Of Womankind by Feist This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Texas. After a week in legal limbo, Kate Cox, a woman who sought a court ruling to temporarily block Texas's abortion ban so she could get an emergency abortion, has left Texas to obtain the time-sensitive procedure she needs elsewhere. She's a mother of two who was 20 weeks pregnant when she sought the abortion after learning her fetus has a lethal abnormality and that being forced to carry the non-viable pregnancy to term could make it impossible for her to have more children. A Texas judge granted a court order last Thursday in the landmark case that would have allowed her to have the abortion. But the next day, the Texas Supreme Court temporarily overturned the order. And then on Monday, it issued a final ruling to stop Kate Cox from having an abortion. Texas Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton had filed the motion to overturn and threatened to prosecute any providers involved in giving Cox an abortion, from a doctor to a hospital. Cox spoke to NBC News last Thursday. It's a hard time. We're going through the loss of a, of a child. There's no outcome here that I take home my healthy baby girl, you know, so um, it's hard, you know. Just, uh, you know, grief. The lawsuit filed by Kate Cox also sought protection for her husband and her doctor from the Texas law that allows anyone to sue patients, medical workers, a cab driver, or even a patient's family or friends who, quote, aid and abet an abortion. Meanwhile, pregnant woman in Kentucky suing over her state's near-total ban on abortion. She's the lead plaintiff in the class action lawsuit, which argues the ban violates Kentucky's Constitution. On Monday, her attorneys told a Kentucky court that after filing the case, the woman learned her embryo no longer has cardiac activity. For more, we're joined by two guests. In Kentucky— we're joined by Tamara Weeder, Kentucky State Director for Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocates. And in Houston, Dr. Bhavik Kumar is with us, a family medical physician, abortion provider in Texas, also co-chair of the Committee to Protect Healthcare's Reproductive Freedom Task Force. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Dr. Kumar, let's begin with you in Texas. Explain the Kate Cox case, um, the abnormality her fetus had, um, what it meant for her, and how it's possible the court went from saying, yes, you're one of the exceptions to this abortion ban, to having basically to flee the state of Texas so that she would not be—well, one of her great fears was sterile, so that she couldn't have more children. In case, um, it's devastating to hear what Kate Cox has had to experience. And unfortunately, it's one of hundreds, if not thousands, of comparable stories where people know what's best for them. They're consulting their medical team, making decisions. But unfortunately, in Texas, they're unable to exercise that right. Um, from what I understand from public records, Kate Cox uh, had a pregnancy that was diagnosed with trisomy 18 also referred to as Edwards syndrome, where it's extremely likely that the pregnancy would not continue to term. Even if the pregnancy did continue to term, survival is very, very low. Um, in 
Public records, Kate also mentioned that she would like to have future children and preserve her fertility. And so if this pregnancy were to continue, her health would be at stake and her future fertility would also be in limbo and unclear. And so the decision that she made with her medical team was to end this pregnancy. And I think we could clearly hear in her voice how difficult that decision might have been and how much emotion she's feeling. Um, and she saw that care here close to home in her home state of Texas. And again, we see these stories all the time. This is a very common scenario. While Kate's story is personal and unique to her, this is very, very similar to what I hear from hundreds of people. And before the fall of Roe, I would be able to help these folks, even if they are in a difficult moment, to at least get through it, to be able to live their lives in their own terms, and to decide what's best for their future. In this case with Kate, it might have been to have children at some other time um, and hopefully have a healthy pregnancy that she can carry to term. So luckily, um, Kate did have the ability to go out of state. That doesn't mean it's easy or, um, you know, nice for folks to go out of state. It, they should be able to get the care here in Texas. Many people, unfortunately, aren't able to make it out of state. And in states like Texas and in Kentucky and in other states that have abortion bans, folks are being forced to carry those pregnancies to term putting their lives at risk, their families' lives at risk. And it's a really unfortunate situation that we have here in Texas. You see around the country when uh, politicians vote in abortion bans, they always say, oh, there are exceptions. Now, there was an exception in Texas. Ultimately, the court ruled that she could have that procedure because of what was at stake for her. Um, but then you have the attorney general of Texas, Ken Paxton, who himself, the, they attempted to impeach, has been charged with corruption. Um, and he blocked that. He sued and the court agreed. Um, and talk about what it means that a physician like you or a hospital or a cab driver driving a pregnant person somewhere could be sued by anyone in this country if they were involved with them getting an abortion, sometimes to save their own lives. Yep. This is exactly what we've been talking about for years now. We have a very hostile situation in Texas when it comes to reproductive rights, specifically abortion. And really anybody who's at risk of becoming pregnant or is pregnant is under this hostile regime that includes the Texas Attorney General. We have three abortion bans, one that was written in 1840s or 1850s, one that was passed after Roe fell, and then SB 8, which would allow anybody to bring a lawsuit forward without knowing the person who had the abortion up to three years after the abortion took place. So while these politicians say there are exceptions, somebody really has to be at death's door before we can reasonably act in their favor. And here we have a situation where somebody has a non-viable pregnancy, their physician has looked at their specifics of their medical history and determined that this is the best thing for them, sought some relief from the courts, a judge heard the case and said, it's okay for this to move forward. And yet the Texas Attorney General is coming in with a letter threatening the physician, threatening anybody involved with that care, threatening all three hospitals where this physician has admitting privileges. And the consequences are loss of medical license, monetary fines, civil and criminal liability, as well as potentially life in jail. So this is not something that we take lightly. While physicians like me want to provide care, we have the skills and training to provide care for these folks. We're simply under a very oppressive regime that makes it unclear if we can act in our patient's best favor until they are sicker and closer to death, which is exactly what we as physicians want to avoid while the state is pushing them further in that direction. 
I want to bring Tamara Weider into the conversation, Kentucky State Director for Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocates. If you can update us on what is happening with Jane Doe. Um, on Monday, attorneys informed a Kentucky court that after filing a class action lawsuit challenging the state's abortion ban last Friday, the lead plaintiff, who we know now is Jane Doe, learned her embryo no longer has cardiac activity. What's happening there in Kentucky? Yes. Yeah, so that is all that really is public knowledge at this point to protect Jane Doe's identity. Uh, that has been key to this lawsuit moving forward. But at this time, nothing really changes the, the trajectory of this lawsuit moving forward, which is that we are going to move forward uh, with Jane Doe at this moment uh, because it doesn't change why we brought the suit forward. She was pregnant in a state that did not allow her to terminate a pregnancy, which she wanted to terminate. And she was going to have to leave the state to seek her abortion. Uh, just like over a million other people of reproductive age in Kentucky right now who find themselves pregnant and seeking an abortion, they have to leave the state. Or just like in Texas, if they have a medical emergency, they're taken right up to the line of near death to access those medical exemptions or so-called exemptions because there is so much liability right now that hospitals are afraid to take on in the Commonwealth. And so people are having to leave the state and go either to Illinois or right now Ohio. But there's lots of new legislation that, you know, we are hearing from that are going to make it more difficult or, you know, increase the chilling effect. And what's happening in Texas is definitely going to increase the chilling effect up here in Kentucky because these laws, restrictions and these attacks don't happen in a vacuum. But we will move forward with our, our lawsuit currently uh, with Planned Parenthood as a plaintiff as well. Um, Jane Doe said in a press statement, I am angry that now that I am pregnant and do not want to be the government's interfering in my private matters and blocking me from having an abortion. I'm bringing this lawsuit because I firmly believe everyone should have the ability to make their own decisions about their pregnancies. So you have a number of other people um, that are being represented here. And if you can talk about the politics of Kentucky um, and uh do you see this ban being lifted? Sure. So we hope it is a class action lawsuit. So we do hope that uh, people hearing about this case um, who may be in a similar situation uh, in Kentucky who uh, would like to join our class action lawsuit, they do have to uh, be pregnant and seeking an abortion at the time that they join the class action lawsuit, uh, can call the ACLU of Kentucky or Planned Parenthood here in Kentucky, and we can uh, talk with them and see if they can join the, the class action lawsuit. Uh, we have been looking since February when the Supreme Court of Kentucky uh, informed us with our previous lawsuit that providers could not, uh, you know, take our case forward without a patient. And so we had to start over and, and find a plaintiff, which has taken us some time. So we are so incredibly proud and honored uh, that Jane Doe stepped forward, uh, especially, you know, in a politically hostile environment. I wouldn't say that Kentucky is necessarily hostile. We have now had two uh, elections where uh, abortion has really uh, been cemented as a winning issue in Kentucky. We had a constitutional amendment last year that 
overwhelmingly and you actually turned have, out Kentucky. As, as we wrap up, Democratic Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir is set for inauguration today. Many say his race turned on a referendum and abortion. Correct. Yes. Uh, Andy Bashir's race really turned on abortion, uh, really uh, moved people to vote on abortion access, where our Attorney General Daniel Cameron uh, was one of the most restrictive attorney generals, similar to Ken Paxton, on abortion, and uh, people turned out against him on abortion. Uh, we have to leave it there. Tamara, Tamara Weeder, Kentucky State Director for Planned Parent Alliance Advocates, wearing a pin that says, uh, bans off our bodies. And Dr. Bhavik Kumar, family medicine physician and abortion provider in Texas.